Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and a warm welcome to the Lady English Lecture at St Hilda's College. My job, my very pleasant job tonight, as the recently appointed principal of the college, is to introduce Lady English to you. Many of you will find this redundant, but there may be one or two who have yet to know Lady English in all her different embodiments. <laughs> Lady English was born and raised in Sheffield, a place from which many, many good things come. You'll all agree. Her father was the medical superintendent of the famous Northern General Hospital, which still remains one of, if not the largest hospitals in Europe, and has a wonderful history in looking after the health of the, all of the generations of Sheffield steelworkers. She then received her undergraduate and her medical, medical degrees from Girton College in Cambridge, she went on and worked in London hospitals, spending two and a half years as a lecturer in clinical immunology in the, at Royal Brompton Hospital, uh, before training in psychiatry at the Maudsley Hospital in London. Thereafter, she emigrated to the United States. Later on in her career in America, Lady English became slightly more involved in hospital management at a high level and completed a five-year term as Chief of Staff of the Veterans Administration Hospital uh, Boston Healthcare System. This is a famous teaching hospital affiliated with three medical schools, those of uh, Boston University, Harvard and Tufts. Uh, during these years, Lady English was an associate clinical professor of psychiatry at Boston University and an assistant professor of psychiatry at Tufts University. So, so far, I have enumerated about four or five different careers, each one of, in each one of which she excelled. <coughs> to take up the post of principal at this college in 2001, she returned here after a career of great distinction um, that spanned 26 years in academic psychiatry and high-level hospital management in America. She was attracted here, I gather, by the opportunity to bring her experience uh, from an academic medical environment to a university and collegiate setting and to build on her long-standing interest and passion for education, for career development and for the mentoring and development of women in the professions generally, not just in medicine. Her time at St Hilda's was a period of great change, huge change. During her watch, the governing body voted for the college to change its statutes and to admit men uh, from academic year 2008. And as a direct consequence of that, you see me standing in front of you, I suppose. 
you can reserve judgment. Uh, Lady English continues her commitment to education through her current uh, role as the Dean of Scholars at the Oxford Centre for Islamic Studies, as well as welcoming and introducing Lady English. It's a, ple a pleasure for me to welcome also um, two members of her family with us tonight, Claire, one of her daughters, two daughters, who has uh, traveled all the way from the United States to join us here this evening. Warm welcome to St. Hilda's, Claire. And the other is uh, Lady English's husband, Sir Terence, uh, who is a legend in the field of medicine and surgery, performed the first heart transplant in, in the United Kingdom, uh, and as well as that, uh, was the master of St. Catherine's College in Cambridge, not quite as good as being the principal of St. Hilda's, but uh, <laughs> a, a, a decent second. I would now like to step down and hand the podium over to Lady English. Good evening, everybody. It's a great pleasure to see all of you here. And I'd like particularly to welcome anybody who hasn't been to St. Hilda's before. We're very pleased to have you with us. <clears throat> when I was asked by governing body a year ago whether I would allow them to associate my name with an annual lecture series on equality, I was touched and delighted. Equality of opportunity has long been a strong interest for me in my work, as you've just been hearing. And <clears throat> it was uh, after a, a, over a hundred years of St. Hilda's being focused on the opportunities for education and advancement for women, now that we're a mixed community, I think the broadening of the interests of the college, the focus of the college to equality in many ways is very much the way I feel that it should go forward. So I was very delighted when the governing body more recently adopted as its major focus for St. Hilda's identity, excellence and equality, as you see on our banner here. And this lecture series is then able to be very much in tune with that focus. I want to make it clear that this Lecture series is made possible by the generosity of a large number of people. The Lady English Fund was set up at the time of my retirement, and there were many contributions from alumni, members of the college, and friends of the college, and quite a lot of people who, of you who are in this room have contributed to it. So it's thanks to many people that this lecture series has been able to be established. And that fund remains open, so if any of you would like to support its continuing <clears throat> flourishing over the years, then you're very welcome to, to contribute to it. So, <clears throat> I think that in this moment, I want to say personally how pleased I am that my daughter Claire was able to join us this year and give a special welcome to her. And also to say how delighted I am that Melissa Benn, who opened the series for us with her talk last year, has been able to return. Welcome back to St. Hilda's, Melissa. We're delighted to have you with us again. And now, 
Without any further comment, I'm going to hand over to our Vice Principal, Selina, who will introduce tonight's speaker. And Fiona, I'm looking forward very much to hearing what you have to say. Thanks very much indeed. Um, welcome. I'm delighted to be able to introduce Fiona Miller, who's going to deliver this year's Lady English Lecture. This event is a celebration of St Hilda's commitment to excellence and equality, and those are values which have guided the career of tonight's speaker. Fiona is a journalist and a campaigner. A graduate of UCL, she began her career with the Mirror Group of newspapers as a news reporter, lobby correspondent, and then freelance feature writer. A former government special advisor, she now writes a column in the Education Guardian and is a regular contributor to media and policy debate about education, parenting, and family life. Her publications include The Secret World of the Working Mother, which explores the experiences of women trying to juggle home, work, and childcare, an experience not uncommon to many in the audience, I think. In between being a school governor and a writer, Fiona is also chair of the National Youth Arts Trust and a member of the Steering Group of Comprehensive Future, which campaigns for fair admissions to secondary schools. Tonight's lecture combines her diverse areas of expertise and is entitled, What Should the State Wish for All Its Children? Please join me in welcoming Fiona Miller. Thank you very much. You can all hear me. I've obviously pressed the right button on the mic. Good. Okay. Well, thank you for inviting me here tonight. Thank you to Lady English for um, giving your name to this lecture and also to all the other people who've helped to sponsor it. And thank you to Selina for asking me and also for her trenchant letters to the Guardian about state education. We need a lot more of that. And of course to St Hilda's for hosting this talk and for the very generous dinner afterwards. Now I'm very conscious that this is only the second Lady English lecture. Um, and I'm following in the footsteps of Melissa Benn, who's out here, my fellow, friend, my fellow campaigner and friend who spoke passionately last year about contemporary feminism. I think she'll be a hard act to follow, but I'm going to try and match her contribution by exploring some issues around education, inequality and children in this, what is almost a general election year. Now, strictly speaking, I'm not an educationalist or an educator. As Selina has said, after university, I trained and worked as a tabloid newspaper uh, journalist, then spent six years working for the last Labour government, and I've been around party politics for most of my life. And because of my multiple identities as a journalist, as an activist, and also as a school governor, I'm fascinated by the complex relationship between politics, policymaking, evidence, and to a lesser extent, the media. And my specific interest in children and schools, I, I'm sure this is true of many people in the audience, started when I had my own children. Our children's primary school was one of the first schools to be failed by Ofsted. And in those days, that me meant being very publicly named and shamed. The process of lionising successful schools and demonising the ones that were failing was an absolutely essential part of helping parents to exercise choice. And in those days, that was quite a novel idea. In the period that followed, I got to understand very quickly how choice works in practice. 
how the knowing, affluent parents quickly and at times ruthlessly work the system on behalf of their children, how much quality of schooling matters, especially to children from challenging home backgrounds, how some parents can, so can compensate for both poverty and poor education through a supportive home environment, and how others are less equipped to do that. And even today, as a governor of two local secondary schools, I would say that the roots of nearly all the exclusions that come before me and my colleagues lie outside schools in family, family breakdown, poverty, behaviour and complex mental health issues. And exclusion is one of the fastest routes to later deprivation in life. You only need to look at the figures for young people classed as NEAT, that means not in education, employment or training, or in the criminal justice system to see that. So I've chosen as the title of this talk, What Should the State Wish for All Its Children? And those of you who are familiar with the work of the socialist historian and campaigner R.H. Tawney will know that this comes from his suggestion that what a wise parent should wish for their children, the state should wish for all its children. And I've heard this quote being used many times, used and misused, I have to say, mostly from the lips of politicians trying to justify their latest initiatives. And I've even used it myself from time to time. And the word wise may not necessarily be helpful in this context because it's loaded up with lots of different value judgments. The dictionary definition of wise is showing experience, knowledge and reflection. Many parents have powerful instincts about what they want for their children, but they often lack the knowledge and experience to realise those hopes and dreams. And when it comes to parenting, knowledge is power. So let me try and paint a picture of what I believe most parents want for their children. And with over 13 million dependent children in the UK, it's hard to be absolutely sure, of course, but there are many national and international surveys of parent opinion, some of which I've been involved with myself, so a wordle or a tag cloud of what the wise parent might want would probably look something like this. Happy, healthy, loved, safe, achieving, economically and emotionally secure in adult life, having hope, good relationships, an equal chance of success in life. And I believe that the rational state should want all these things for its children too, if we want an inclusive, cohesive society. Now, the good news about the political times in which we live is that I don't think anyone, bar the most extreme libertarian, would seriously contest that the state does have a role in trying to achieve these aims for its children. All the main political parties proclaim the values of personal responsibility, but they also want to improve social mobility and well-being. Even UKIP, in its warped way, sees a role for the state, albeit limited to the children of families from certain ethnic backgrounds. And another piece of good news is that we have a lot of good, solid evidence. And I can't remember a time in my life when we've had so much public discussion about evidence and so much information. Just to name a few sources on which I've drawn preparing for this talk. The Sutton Trust, uh, Research on Social Mobility. The Education Endowment Foundation, a sister charity to the Sutton Trust, which is looking at the evidence to improve achievement for disadvantaged children. The Early Intervention Foundation, working on the early causes of social disadvantage. The Centre for Longitudinal Studies at the Institute of Education, which has amassed a wealth of evidence from its three cohort studies, 1958, 1970 and the Millennium Studies, which have tracked thousands of children through to adulthood. And finally, the EPE and EPSE studies. I'm very pleased to see that two of the authors of those studies are in the audience, because these, these studies have been following 3,000 children from preschool through secondary school from the mid-1990s until today. Nearly all these studies have involved a major financial commitment from governments on both sides of the political divide, and that commitment was made to try and understand how children develop and learn in this country. 
But the bad news is that we still have a long way to go, which means we may not be using the evidence very well. Most parents start out with the potential to be good enough, and most children start out with the potential to thrive. But gaps open up in the first few years of life. The latest research suggests that a 19-month gap in cognitive development between the best and the worst off children starts, is, is there before they start school. The Social Mobility and Child Poverty Commission, chaired by Alan Milburn, estimates two in three children eligible for free school meals are not school ready at five. Children who grow up in the poorest families face higher risks of multiple deprivation later in life. So, poor mental health, low wage work, no work at all possibly, poor housing. And in spite of all the education initiatives in recent years, the last year the gap in GCSE scores between children eligible for free school meals and those who aren't was 26%. And in March of this year, 13% of 16 to 24 year olds were not in education, employment or training. That's almost a million young people. And it's a waste of talent, it's unfair, and it makes me very angry because I don't think any of us who are parents would want our own children's lives to be shaped in this way. So forget the wise parents. I'm going to talk a bit about the wise, what the wise state needs to do to put a more solid structure around its children, particularly its most vulnerable ones, if we were to give everyone an equal chance of success. So I'm going to talk about the four pillars of that structure. These are some of the sticky issues, I believe, on which the evidence suggests we should be focused, but I'm going to look at also at their place in the political agenda. So there you've got them. Parenting, home environment, early intervention, good teachers and school leaders, peer group and school composition, and cognitive and non-cognitive skills. Now, even if the evidence did not point so conclusively to the value of early intervention, it should be common sense. I'm guessing that most of the people in this room have been lucky with their own start in life and able to give similar assets to their own children. So we know what a good start looks like. A warm, comfortable home, an extended supportive family, the ability to access other professional support when needed, power to pass on educational advantage, books, language, vocabulary, respect, being part of a wider community where there is friendship, reciprocity, mutual respect. So maybe it's hard for us to, to imagine what life is like in communities that are fragmented, where families are broken or struggling, where loneliness, isola isolation and disempowerment often overwhelm the best parental instincts. These are se severe constraints on parents being good enough. And that means it's necessary to start building relationships around those families even before their children are born, by helping young mothers form secure bonds with their babies, providing universal high-quality early years provision and nursery education, good teachers, skilled childcare workers, getting lone parents back to work. The UK is still one of the most expensive countries in Europe when it comes to childcare costs. And as the EPE study shows, what parents do is more important than who they are. So offering family and parenting support, outreach work, parent education, these should be available in schools and communities throughout the country, but particularly in the early years. Now the drive to get more disadvantaged two-year-olds into nursery is good, but the current closure and merger of children's centres, the impact of budget cuts on wider extended services and the slashing of local authority funding, £33 billion of cuts still to come, mean priorities for children will inevitably be traded against other statutory services. Early intervention and support for young people and their families is, not just, is just not a big enough priority. But it could be. We've got the capacity, 
for big, imaginative, ambitious projects to enhance the na nation's future. Think about HS2. Now, people have got very mixed views about HS2. But the Prime Minister recently urged his critics to see the bigger picture advantages it would bring. Why can't investment in children be, have big picture status? And I'm going to come back later to some of the reasons why I think that doesn't happen. Now, secondly, I want to talk a bit about schools. The current prevailing view in the government is that the lion's share of the task of overcoming social disadvantage can and must be done by schools. One of Michael Gove's first acts in government was to remove the words children and families from the name of his department. Instead of the more holistic Every Child Matters agenda, described by Mr Gove as being meddlesome, we got a less generous vision of what schools might be. Every child in a blazer and tie, boot camp discipline, teachers recruited directly from the army, a focus on a narrow range of subjects and an even narrower range of assessment, basically a lot of exams. I'm parodying here to make a point, but if you followed the rhetoric and history of any of the free school projects, you will know what I mean. Schools do matter, but even if we do manage to overcome disadvantage and challenging home backgrounds in the early years, how we organise our schools pulls in the opposite direction by exacerbating divisions and lavishing even greater benefits on those who already have so much. At the top of the pyramid, you've got the schools that cost £12,000 a year for a day place and £27,000 a year for a boarding place. In my occasional skirmishes with heads from the independent sector, I was asked how many children eligible for free school meals or for the pupil premium they educate in their schools. Answer comes there, none. And that's probably because eligibility for free school meals is £16,000 a year. In spite of all the talk of means-tested bursaries, only around 1% of pupils get a full fee reduction. Bursaries are mo mostly awarded following academic tests, which are in themselves discriminatory. And the recent Daily Telegraph article boasted that some fee assistance was available to families earning up to £80,000 a year. And people should go out and get it. Then there are the overt and covert hierarchies in the state sector. The grammar schools, fueled by private, a private tuition industry that can cost up to £3,000 a year. They educate far fewer children um, eligible for free school meals from certain minority ethnic backgrounds or with special educational needs in their local communities. They also skew the intakes of the schools around them. They brand thousands of children failures at 10 or 11, and they reduce choice for many parents. Next level down in the hierarchy are the socially selective faith schools, often with ingeniously complex admissions arrangements, points for faith, points for home address, and where you live, parish, points for aptitude in singing, dancing and playing the piano, even for bell ringing and service to the local church. In the secondary sector, the rapid expansion of the independent state school means that over 70% now have freedom over who they admit. New freedoms, that freedoms they didn't have before. Not all choose to use them, but some do. And then at the bottom of the pile, and I'm afraid that's very much how it's seen in some communities, you have the schools in the poorer neighbourhoods which aren't engaged in manipulating their intakes. And very often they are educating a disproportionate number of poorer children with low prior attainment. Many do an exceptional job, but they often lack that favourable school composition, the critical mass of able and aspirant pupils that help all children to do well. And in certain parts of the country, they often struggle to find and retain the best teachers, and teaching is one of the most important influences a child can have. Now, the former London Schools Commissioner, a fellow Oxford resident, some of you, Sir Tim Brighouse, once described this as a dizzyingly steep hierarchy. It's always been there in the English school system, and we do have to remember, of course, that education is devolved now. In Tawney's lifetime, people talked openly about gold, silver and metal children, 
to justify the then bipartite system of grammars and secondary models. But today we have even more insidious and subtle ways of sorting children. The pursuit of individual self-interest, personal choice, and the best-for-my-child philosophy has been allowed to trump the common good. Diversity in competition, ranking schools by results, too much freedom over admissions, all this has inevitably led to some schools where they have the power, picking off the children who are easiest to teach and discarding the rest. And there are the, what the, the Children's Commission on Poverty last week described as the hidden costs of state schools, expensive uniforms, pricey school trips, subtly used to encourage self-selection amongst parents. During a particularly fierce debate with the head teacher of a very, very successful London faith school, I, I questioned her about these practices. Her reply was brunt. If you expect us to work in a market, then don't blame us if we use the tools of the market to succeed. To be clear, I don't think there's anything wrong with parents wanting the best for their children. It's a natural instinct. But the job of the state should be to want what's best for all children. And the best way to give every child an equal chance and to allow all parents to exercise choice fairly is by ending all forms of selection and creating comprehensive, all-ability, socially mixed schools all over the country. Finland, an international high flyer when it comes to achievement <coughs> and equity, took a bold step half a century ago. It abolished selection and private schools and made it illegal to charge fees. I very much doubt that last step would be taken here, but we could gradually phase out selection from school admissions. We could oblige the independent schools to do more in return for their charitable status. And by that, that I mean not just taking in the children of the credit crunch middle classes, but making a real contribution to their local community of schools in return for the tax benefits they get. So helping to educate the children who are at risk of ex ex exclusion, providing teachers in shortage subjects, offering their art, sport and drama facilities for nothing. I can already anticipate all the arguments against this. Social engineering, dumbing down, wanting to force children into what one of my guardian below-the-line commenters once described as the educational equivalent of the Trabant car. But the English public schools are one of the most blatant examples of social engineering that there are in the world. And whether it was the cruel use of the 11 plus in the 1950s or the social selection we see today, allowing schools to pick and choose who they teach always lets down poor children creates more division and more segregation. Right, I'm going to move on to teachers now. So much has been made in recent years of the UK's poor performance in the international tables like the OECD Programme for International Student Assessment, otherwise known as PISA. These tables are usually used to justify attacking the bog standard comprehensive and introducing more diversity of provision, although it's, there's actually very little solid evidence to suggest that different types of schools, like academies or free schools, actually do much better than maintained schools. But rather than focus on our deficiencies, I want to look at, for a moment at the features of the countries that perform well in PISA. They don't segregate their children at a young age. They offer schools, teachers and heads autonomy over how and what they teach. But they also focus relentlessly on the quality of teaching, with strong local systems of accountability, which are partly breaking down in this country. And that's not just the transmission of knowledge, it's high expectations, respectful relationships with pupils, effective management of behaviour, continuous professional development. These are probably the most important gifts that, that the state could give to all its children through its teaching workforce. But a combination of the hierarchy I talked about earlier and exceptionally high stakes performance measures mean that schools that are teaching the neediest children often find it hardest to recruit and keep their best teachers.
and heads. And at a time when we should be celebrating teaching and school leadership as high-skilled and high-status, we have slipped into a rancorous culture of demonising teachers. This extends to Ofsted, the government and the media. A market-style approach to teacher training means we are now heading to shortages in core subjects at a time when the school role is increasing. And we're involved in a public debate about whether teachers need to be qualified at all. Quite extraordinary. This might be very well in some private schools that are teaching an academically selected homogenous group, but it's certainly not all right in schools that are teaching the poorest children. And if you don't believe me, look at the catastrophically bad Ofsted report into the Al Medina Free School in Derby, where not one of the teachers in the primary phase had ever taught before. We'll never get the sort of high-status teaching profession we deserve if we send a signal that anyone can do it. We should be focusing relentlessly on recruiting the best graduates into teaching, talking teachers and school leaders up, not down, making it a career people fight to get into, and putting the best teachers in the toughest schools. Now, the final point. I'm going to call this character and grit, because that's how it's described in the media now. What everybody from the wise parent to the Confederation of British Industry recognises is that, of course, academic standards do matter, but to flourish in life, young people need a mix of cognitive and non-cognitive skills. So literacy, numeracy, knowledge, reliable, robust qualifications, but also resilience, perseverance, confidence, motivation, self-discipline and self-esteem, or if you prefer to describe it in more muscular terms, character and grit. Now, good early intervention and good teaching can help to foster these characteristics, but our league table culture, Ofsted compliance, and the current emphasis on a narrow range of good subjects risks pushing the broader purpose of education to the margins. As England fixates on what can be measured and examined, many of our competitors around the world are exploring new ways of valuing creativity, personal, social and emotional development alongside academic achievement. In Singapore, a new curriculum for character and citizenship education has just been introduced because they recognise that this will ultimately lead to happier, more productive young people and a better society. At its heart, core values, care, respect, responsibility, resilience, harmony and integrity. Core competencies, self-awareness, relationships with others, responsible decision-making. And no, this isn't coming from the lips of a wishy-washy progressive teacher spawned by Mr Gove's blob. It's an integral part of the national development of a country right at the top of those international league tables we aspire to emulate. Over here, the RSA recently produced an excellent report called Schools with Soul. It suggested several things. Firstly, that the academic year after the next general election should be deemed a year of re reflection, when Ofsted inspections are cut to a minimum, no organisations publish any new policy proposals, and schools are given time to focus on the spiritual, moral, cultural and social education of their pupils. In a sign, a sign of some desperation with the status quo, some head teachers in the state sector are now looking at developing their own baccalaureate model. In this model, academic qualifications are valued alongside vocational and practical education. They want credits for civic engagement, sport, music and drama, the types of pursuits that enrich all our lives as human beings. There is an appetite for change, and the state, I'm afraid to say, is lagging behind. So, why is the state lagging behind? Well, I have a fantasy one day that I'll wake up and one of the party leaders will be making a speech, not about diversity and choice, not about setting or streaming or exams, or about parents being able to sack heads. Instead, they're going to be saying, I'm going to put children at the heart of everything we do, 
I'm going to build strong, universal early intervention to support families in whatever circumstances they find themselves. Excellent affordable childcare and nursery education. All ability, socially mixed schools. I'm going to focus on teaching as a high status, high skill profession. Introduce a broad curriculum. Is this really such a dangerous and radical idea? I don't think so. It seems to me blindingly obvious. But now, I want to talk a little bit before I finish about some reasons why I think this doesn't happen. The first and obvious one is that children don't vote. Only parents count, and even then, the market is segmented, to use the language of the pollster. Some parents are valued more highly than others, who might be cynically seen as less likely to vote. So turning on to, in, tuning into Radio 4's Today programme re recently, I caught an item where a presenter and some... Um, Studio guests were discussing a new piece of software called polyfiller.com. This is designed to spot, remove, and put into virtual quarantine cliches, jargon, and overworked phrases from politicians. <laughs> At the end of the party conference season, he'd banked almost 500 of these tired second rate phrases. And one that you will be familiar with is the hard working family. This has recently graduated into the everyday hard working family. The everyday theme presumably distinguishes these hardworking families from the rich and powerful hardworking families and then subliminally creates a wedge against the non-hardworking welfare scrounger families. But rather than thinking in terms of deserving and undeserving families, we should just be thinking in terms of children and questioning the impact that every single new policy proposal has on them. Several, I can guarantee you, would fall at the first hurdle, the most obvious being the current cap on housing benefit. At a time when shelter is reporting over 80,000 children living in temporary accommodation and 2,000 in bed and breakfast accommodation, the state is uprooting children of mostly working families, incidentally, and expecting them to settle successfully in new communities and new schools or to travel huge distances every day so they can continue their education. One mother is now challenging this policy in the Supreme Court, having been forced to put her three children in foster care so they could stay in their London schools while she moved 55 miles away to temporary accommodation. When the UN rapporteur on housing, Raquel Romnick, challenged the ethical basis of this policy, she was attacked by the media for being a loopy Brazilian lefty, or in the words of the Daily Fail, the Brazil nut, and accused of basing her assertions on anecdotal evidence. The welfare minister, Ian Duncan Smith, claimed the policy was legal and would lead to a fairer, more prosperous Britain, Legal, maybe, but certainly not fair, and not moral either, and it certainly wouldn't get past the children test. Next thing is the pale male politics. The Financial Times recently reported despair amongst some Tory MPs that the Conservative Party manifesto is being written by six men, five of whom went to Eton, and the six, to introduce a bit of diversity, who went to St Paul's. <laughs> The percentage of MPs who went to private schools rose by 3% last year, so that's now 35% of the total. And obviously we know that the private schools educate 7% of the population. The Sutton Trust report on the edu educational backgrounds of the nation's leading people, and these are the 8,000 people who appeared in the birthday lists of the daily and Sunday papers in 2011, reinforces that bias. 44% of the leading people went to independent schools, 27% to grammar schools, 10 prominent public schools produce 12% of these leading people. Now, a privileged background doesn't necessarily mean that someone will lack concern, but it may mean they lack empathy or understanding 
of children and families unlike their own. It may mean they are reluctant to take on the powerful vested interests <coughs> from which they or their children may have benefited. And it may also mean that it's all too easy to believe that recreating your own school experience will somehow magically iron out inequality. Now to the gender issue. Only 22% of MPs at the last election were women and 15% of ministers. Should that matter? After all, men are parents too. But it seems to make a difference in other countries. The UN League Table of Women in Ministerial Positions has the UK 54th out of 97 countries. But many of the countries with the strongest female representation, Norway, Sweden, Finland, Denmark, the Netherlands, are also at the top of the international tables of child wellbeing. In the last UNICEF report card on child wellbeing, the UK came 16th out of 29 countries and 24th out of 29 countries for, on education, mostly because of the numbers of young people who are neat. So on first sight, there appears to be a fairly strong correlation between a better gender balance in politics and better policies for children. And it isn't just the MPs, incidentally. The macho culture of Westminster extends into the think tanks where ideas and priorities often start. These ideas make their way into party manifestos through an intricate network of mostly male policy advisors who are in turn often recruited from the think tanks themselves. And guess what? The think tanks are mostly run and staffed by men. All the top six think tanks have male directors and male chairs. Several have all-male, all-white boards. Clearly they look around the table at each other and think that's perfectly normal. But out here in the real world, it isn't normal. And there is a direct relationship between the number of women in senior positions in these organisations and the number of policies for families and children that they promote. Now, onto my favourite topic, the media. Um, forget running policies past a children test. In reality, policies run past the Daily Mail test. And I know this very well because I've lived for 33 years with somebody who spent 10 years doing it. And I used to see, see policies being whipped up at short notice to satisfy the media. But fear of offending the sensibilities of a tiny, unaccountable, wealthy elite of proprietors and editors is all-powerful. And the media beast has a voracious appetite for more announcements. Not for them the sturdy policies based on evidence and requiring slow implementation. Everything has to be served up with a headline or a gimmick. So it isn't good enough for Labour's Tristram Hunt to say he will focus on teaching quality. The policy has to be dressed up in licences for teachers, or latterly, teachers pledging Hippocratic oaths to their profession. <coughs> Although the new breed of citizen journalist and the power of social media may act as an effective break on this, responses from teachers on Twitter to the Hunt suggestion including the following pledges, included the following pledges. I pledge to work 60-hour weeks before I'm forced out with complete exhaustion. I pledge not to cry and hide in my cupboard when things start going wrong. And to always refill the star from kettle if empty. I, pro I promise to nod sagely at every new and time-consuming initi initiative that will undoubtedly be reversed in 18 months' time. I swear to follow education poli policies thought up by people with no relevant experience apart from the fact that they went to school. And I promise to fall asleep before eight every evening and never see the end of any film. And a source close to Michael Gove, who's now the chief whip, and the man who based some of his ideas for the history curriculum on the findings of a survey carried out by the Premier Inn, said, this was a gimmick we would have run a mile from. But joking apart, perhaps the most important barrier to effective policies for children and families is the lack of trust. 
the democratic deficit left by systematic redistribution of powers away from local people, away from local government and communities. For all the talk of, talk of a bottom-up big society, the levers of change increasingly lie in Whitehall. Devolved regions like Northern Ireland have more autonomy than the much more populated Greater Manchester. We've seen these arguments being played out in the Scottish referendum. In 1988, the Secretary of State for Schools had three powers over schools. Today's incumbent has over 2,000. The lack of trust in local government and institutions has led to an overly bureaucratic and remote response from real people's lives. A holistic, collaborative, local approach must be at the heart of sound policies for children and families. So, so children are seen across various transition points, from birth to secondary school. Accountability can be shared between every agency that is responsible for them. Budgets for children's services, if there is money left after the decimation of local government, can be pooled. And in a more local approach, we may actually ask all families, parents and children, what makes their lives better. Which brings me back to where I started, thinking about what most parents want for their children. The state may not be yet as wise as the wise parent, we are still torn on the one hand between the Thatcherite vision of no such thing as society, just individuals taking responsibility for themselves, and a belief that the market approach to social problems will prevail. And on the other hand, there's an instinctive urge for social solidarity, a belief that society does exist, that we live in a world of other people's children, and that we have an enlightened self-interest in ensuring that everyone can flourish if we are to serve the common good. Which is why I think we also have a public crying out for politicians to show conviction, passion, authenticity and moral leadership. And there's no better place to start than with our children. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Fiona. I was giving a talk at the Oxford University Labour Club last week, and they said to me, which I found a bit worrying, who do you think we should vote for at the next election? <laughs> I think I've found my answer. <laughs> um, I'd like to thank Fiona on behalf of all of us for um, a brilliant, astute, stimulating, and in the last resort, potentially hopeful analysis of contemporary Britain and the challenges that we will face in building a more equal society. Um, and for the vision that she offers for doing so. Fiona's reminded us that aspiring for equality can assist rather than undermine our drive for excellence in our services, our standard of living, our intellectual and our cultural life. At St Hilda's, we firmly believe that excellence and equality go hand in hand. And in fact, we have proof that they do. We're really proud that since becoming a mixed college, our students and our fellowship have only strengthened their reputation for academic excellence. We've not become male-dominated at either level, but we welcome excellence in men as well as women. We recruit the strongest women as well as the strongest men, and we enable them to do well. Our fellowship remains majority female, both in the sciences as well as in the humanities. We also see how this permeates at student level. Last year, and I'm being partisan here because I'm a historian, St Hilda's achieved the best history degree results of any Oxford college. 
We also had the best access record. Every single one of those brilliant students in that year had attended a non-selective state school or college before joining us. Fiona's talk reminds us of the importance of early experiences in shaping future life. In years to come, many of the students sat in the audience tonight and many of our students at St Hilda's more generally, women and men, regardless of educational background, will become the politicians and the teachers of the future. I hope that when they do so, they will take inspiration from the experiences that they've had here at St Hilda's, including the very memorable lecture that Fiona Miller has delivered tonight. Thank you, Fiona.